Well, what a blessing to open the Word of God again today. What a privilege it is to have it and to hear it, to believe it, to do it. The title of this morning's message is Christ Crucified, Risen, and Exalted. We are picking up really in the middle of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. You remember last week we saw Peter's introduction in the book of Joel as he quoted and expounded that text. Today we're actually going to begin with the Apostle Paul. And we'll make a bridge to Peter here in a few minutes, but I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 to 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he makes kind of a closing statement there in verse 11. He says, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Why do we start here this morning? Well, I want to help you as aspiring preachers yourselves, as those who are called to be ambassadors for Christ, as those who want to be faithful in bearing testimony for Jesus, you have to know what the message is that you're called to declare. Have you ever been there? You ever set out to speak the gospel to somebody and found yourself fumbling over how exactly to enter into this thing and what am I supposed to say and all of a sudden you find yourself a little bit tossed here and there and you figure out, you know what, I'm not, I'm not up to this task and you sort of write yourself off and, and, and maybe it's a long time before you ventured again to speak the truth to somebody. It helps if you have a three-point outline. What we are gonna see here is that Jesus gave to Peter a very, and to Paul, a very specific message with specific content that was to be proclaimed. Paul was a steward of the gospel. He was a steward of the good news. He had the responsibility of preaching and defending a message that he received from the Lord Jesus himself. And he tells us what that message is, beginning in verse 3. Note that he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. Paul preached the gospel to them. He had preached it before. He was going to declare it again. He says to them, It's of first importance. Everything in the Bible is important. Some things are more important. And Paul says, This is of first importance. And he says, this is a gospel that I received. Okay, what is it, Paul? And he tells us, number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 
And then it's a little bit veiled in this text, but it's going to be very obvious in the next one that I show you. You'll note in verse 1 that this is a message that must be received in repentance, and it must be believed in verse 2. He says, this is the message you believed and the message by which you also are saved. He says the same thing in verse 11. Whether it was I or they, so we preach, so you believed. There really are the three pillars of the gospel. If we declare anything, here are the three things we must declare. All, all that surrounds Christ's suffering and his cross work on our behalf. The fact that Jesus then was raised from the, from the grave, that there's an empty tomb and that has implications. And then that you are to repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. There is the message that each one of us are to bear out of our lives and out of our lips in this dark and unbelieving world. Paul was under compulsion to preach this gospel, and he was not to preach another. In fact, he said, if any man comes to you preaching another, I don't even care if it's an angel. Somebody comes preaching a gospel other than this, they are to be damned, they are to be accursed. This is serious business, beloved. Paul was bound to preach it. Paul was eager to preach it. Paul faithfully preached it all the way until he went to glory. He had finished the course. He had fought the good fight. He was faithful to the end. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the first thing. This is the most fundamental thing. This is the most necessary truth in the Bible. You can know all kinds of things from the Bible, but if you do not know this truth, you are lost. You can obey all kinds of things that God has said, but if you have not begun at the starting point, which is to obey the gospel of God, to trust Christ for your salvation, you're still in your sins. The great declaration of the church was that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he is the only way that sinners will be saved. We preach a crucified Christ. We preach a resurrected Christ. We preach repentance and faith unto salvation. Last week, we looked at Peter's introduction. You'll remember, you can go over now, actually, to the book of Luke, if you will. The book of Luke in chapter 24 We saw last week in Acts, Peter's introduction, and he gives an explanation for the supernatural phenomenon that was experienced by the crowd as they heard the 120 disciples now filled with the Holy Spirit declare the mighty deeds of God. And the prophet Joel was the text that Peter turns to to explain that phenomenon, and this is what preachers are called to do. They read the text, they explain the text, they apply the text so that everyone can understand what God has said. It does not matter what the preacher thinks. It does not matter necessarily whether he is motivating or he is funny or he is inspiring or provocative. In the end, if he does not proclaim the living word of God, he is no shepherd of God's sheep. The pastor is a steward of the word of God. We live in a day in which the pastor is really nothing more than a life coach. 
who gets up and gives you lists of things that you should do if you want a more fulfilling life. That is not the task of the preacher. And Peter understood this. Paul understood this. And therefore, Peter preaches from his Bible, the Older Testament. He will preach Christ and he will preach him crucified, risen, and exalted. In fact, Peter, just like Paul, preaches only the message that Jesus gave him to preach. And again, I say if you can see this with your own eyes, it's very helpful. You're in Luke 24. I want to pick up in verse 45. Actually, 44. I always do this, don't I? Well, 40, no, just kidding. All right, 44. Now he, Jesus, the, 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 the risen Christ, said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and note this, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What's he pointing to? He's pointing to the Older Testament. He's pointing to his Bible, to the very Bible that Peter and Paul were preaching. There was no New Testament at this point. Verse 45, he opened their minds then to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, tell me if this sounds familiar. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and that he would rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Here are the, the apostles gathered. Here are his disciples gathered. And Jesus is telling them, here's what I want you to go out and do. You are my witnesses. You are to go out and preach the Old Testament scriptures and you are to help people understand that the Christ would suffer, that he would rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name. That's why I say really the gospel has three pillars. This is that three-point outline. It is necessary that the Christ would suffer. Flip over to Acts chapter 2 now. And I'm just going to point this out very quickly and then we'll read the text. What was the, what was the gospel that Jesus authorized? Well, first, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Here's Peter preaching. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and you put him to death. What's the second leg of the gospel? Well, Luke 24 tells us that, that it was necessary that the Christ be raised from the dead. Look at verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of his death, of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. You can see that again down in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again. Note this, to which we are all what? Witnesses. You see how simple this is? Jesus said, you're my witnesses. Peter says, I'm his witness. Jesus says, preach the cross. He preaches the cross. Jesus says, preach my resurrection. He preaches the resurrection. And you say, yeah, but repentance is lacking. No, it's not. Look at verse 38. 
37, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what should we do? These people are brought under conviction. And Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. My friends, this is not rocket science. Peter is only preaching what he's been assigned to preach. And that's what a good preacher does. You don't have to be sharp or particularly cunning or full of all kinds of humorous anecdotes or have every answer in the Bible. You've just got to be able to hang on to three things, Christ crucified, Christ risen, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's your outline. I told you that'd be helpful. Now, we're just gonna look at Peter's outline, Jesus' outline, if you will, through Peter's lips, and we'll make our way through this text. Let's pick up again at the end of Peter's introduction there as he finishes with a call from the book of Joel that it will be that everyone, verse 21, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, he says, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One to see corruption." You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Men, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither forsaken to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, which you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven or into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord, this is your word and we come humbly before it, acknowledging that you are God and it is your right to speak. I pray that you would sanctify this feeble tongue to speak only your word and to speak only the truth, to speak those things that would edify and build up your people. Lord, I pray for your people that they would be quick to hear, slow to speak, and Lord, that they would be quick to do all that your word has said. Thank you again 
for the truth of your word and for opening our eyes and our ears that we may gain insight from it. And we ask for that insight to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Our first point, Christ crucified. Christ crucified in verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Peter boldly, courageously, authoritatively, and impassioned Peter commands attention from his Jewish audience. And Peter gives them this very condensed description of the Lord's life and of his ministry. You'll notice that he identifies Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. There were other Jesuses in this day and age. Jesus of Nazareth distinguishes Jesus from those other Jesuses, and the whole crowd knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. They knew this Jesus. Certainly they would have heard of him. Many had undoubtedly seen him or met him, been a part of some group where he was teaching or working his miracles, whether in Galilee or in Jerusalem. Some perhaps were even among the crowd that cried out, crucify him. But there was no doubt that as Peter preaches, they knew precisely who Peter was speaking of. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. Don't miss those last three words. In your midst. Jesus was in their midst. They knew about him. They knew he was special. They knew he was from God. How did they know that he was from God? Well, the text tells us twice. He was attested to them by God, and they were Miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. They have no excuse because God has made it evident to them who Jesus is. This word attested means to show the quality of something. It's evidence given in such a way that it's indisputable. It's convincing proof. Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. Jesus claimed to be the savior of the world. Jesus claimed to be the only one sent from God who can give eternal life, and their unbelief is unacceptable. There is no excuse, Peter is saying to them. And you know this, Jesus did things that no natural man could do. He healed the infirm, and and he raised them from their sickbed. He raised the dead back to life. He fed tens of thousands from a kid's lunch pail. He, he walked on water. He took what was a wind of hurricane force and told it to stop and to be still. And everything went still. He commanded the demons with authority and they submitted and he raised a paralytic who went leaping home with joy and he spoke with clarity and with authority and with a divine wisdom with which nobody could argue and it transcended all the, all the teachers of his day, all those educated higher-ups. Jesus put all the spiritual PhDs to shame. And all of these miracles and all of these signs caused people to wonder, who is this who commands the wind and the waves? Who is this that teaches with authority, not like our rabbis? 
All of these miracles and all of these signs were a demonstration and they were a clear demonstration that Christ was in fact who he claimed to be. It was evidence that the kingdom of God was in their midst. In John 10, you'll remember that Jesus there has asserted his deity and the Jewish leadership in response sought to kill him. And Jesus argues with him and he says this in verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name. By that he's saying the works that I do in the power of my Father, in the accomplishment of my Father, these bear witness of me. He says to them a second time later in the text, if I do not do the works of my Father, in other words, if I don't do the works of God, then do not believe me. But if I do them, though you don't believe in me, believe the works. These things were signs that Christ is in fact the Messiah, that he was the king, that he was the one who came to bring the kingdom. Jesus had done mighty signs Obvious deeds, inexplicable miracles, wonderful things that only God could do, and they knew it. And Peter, Peter takes his, his preaching finger and he puts it right on their bruised consciences, and he says, you know this. Just as you yourselves know, he says. They understood the implications of these signs. They had wondered just like the rest. And like a prosecutor in a court of law, Peter is going to just press his case. He doesn't let them up. He says to them, this man, what man? Jesus of Nazareth, the righteous one, who's been authenticated by God himself in your midst, of which you are fully aware, you knew him. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and you put him to death. This is not seeker-sensitive preaching. This is not playing around at church or playing around with the word of God as though somehow what Jesus said and what the word of God has said only sort of matters in your life. Al Martin said, we traffic in the matters of life and death, and that's why God has never called a humorist to the pulpit. There's an appropriate humor. Alistair Begg's a marvelous example of it. But do you have gravitas about the word of God? Do you take it seriously? Peter is blood earnest here. And he says in verse 23, if he really, if, if, if this verse tells us anything about the cross, it, it answers the age-old question that has troubled so many, and that is, who is responsible for the death of Christ? Who killed Christ? Was it God or was it sinners? It was both and. Is, is God sovereign over all things or is man responsible for his wicked deeds? The answer to that question is yes. Who did it? Let's just work backwards. He begins by talking about the hands of lawless men. That's a reference to the Roman centurions and Pilate and other leaders who had carried out the crucifixion and all of its 
gory brutality. This was an unjustified murderer, and those men had guilt. But let's walk it back a step further. He says, you nailed him to a cross. They were carrying out your dirty deed. This is a reference to the Jewish leadership, to the citizenry of of Israel. You nailed your Messiah to a cross. And Peter is very direct, isn't he, about where human responsibility for the death of Christ lies. You did it. You nailed the righteous Messiah to a cross. And yet there's something greater at work. There is one who superintends over all. There is one who is sovereign and rules over all the affairs of men. And Peter starts off the list. If you work it back all the way into eternity, what you will find is not fundamentally wicked men or even the Jews. What you will find fundamentally is there is a plan that was orchestrated by God. He is the architect of the cross. He is the one who drew up a blueprint of redemption. He's the initiator. All the way through this text, God, 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 God. He doesn't put all this at the whim of men. He says this is the predetermined plan of God. Clearly all of this is part of his sovereign and eternal design. Isaiah 53.10, it was God who was what? Pleased to crush him if he would render himself a guilt offering. There was something going on there between the father and the son that neither you nor I nor any other sinner had anything to do with. John 3.16, it was God who gave his only begotten son. And it was a gift freely given, says the scriptures. Nothing compelled God to do it but his own love and mercy and compassion. Romans 8.3, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. 8.32, God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us all. You see, Peter had zero problem putting divine sovereignty and human responsibility side by side in the same verse. And he is not at pains to unscrew the inscrutable. He just lets it fall. You did the evil that was in your heart. You put to death the prince of life and God accomplished man's redemption according to his eternal plan. If you want to assign, I suppose, final responsibility for the death of Christ, the buck stops with God. It was his eternal and predetermined plan and frankly, beloved, we bless him for it. Do we not? We do. Peter says not only was it his predetermined plan, but it was also according to the foreknowledge of God. And that is a term that's confused many people. It doesn't just have the idea of knowing in advance. There's an aspect of prior knowledge, but it's always coupled with an intention to bless. 
It's the idea of divine favor and blessing and love. You, you, you might think about your posture at Christmas towards your children or grandchildren. You know them. You love them. Your heart is tied up with them and you have a mind to bless them, to give to them, to pour out your own wealth that they might be made rich. This, this if, we, if we can say in a much less significant way, illustrates this idea that God has foreknown us. He foreknew the cross because he knew his people. And in love, God ordained the cross from before the world began for our salvation. This is so important, and this is why I'm making something of it this morning. Beloved, God is surprised by nothing. God is omniscient. He learns nothing. He's never put back on his heels trying to react to the scene that's happening down on earth. The Bible never paints that picture of him. The cross was not a patch to fix a world gone wrong. God didn't pull a MacGyver to get sinners out of their sin. That dark day was not the result of fate. It was not the result of some sort of crowd hysteria. It was not the result of, of political intrigue. Christ was not a victim. At the end of the day, God is behind it, carrying out his perfect plan. And he carries it out by the designs of wicked men. There were a lot of forces aligned against Christ that day, were there not? Both spiritual and earthly and natural. But in the end, it was the hand of God in a benevolent act of love and mercy and grace. You see, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 puts it this way, for he, the Father, made him Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin. He put our sins on his son. The iniquities of us all fell on him and all of that by God's doing. And God struck his son that he might not strike us. And that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And beloved, hear this. To fail to see the sovereign will of God in all of this is to miss divine intent. And if you miss divine intent, you have stripped grace of its wonder. If you look at the cross as though it was merely a necessary consequence of, of, uh, of the the envy of the Jewish leadership or, or the, the brutality of the Roman regime, if you look at it that way, you're going to miss the love of God and the cross for you. Those things were utterly secondary or tertiary to the real thing, which is God gave his son for your sins in an act of profound love. Which is why the Bible always, when it talks about the love of God, he does not say, stick your nose in your belly button and see if you feel that way. He says, no, if you want to know if God has loved you, look at the cross, look at the giving of the Son, look at a bleeding Savior. 
and trust in him. Brothers and sisters, God willingly, in love, gave his only son over to death for you. Brothers and sisters, Christ willingly, not begrudgingly, willingly, in an act of love, gave himself up for you. And we can never lose sight of the invisible hand of providence in everything in life. The evil of men, it was merely the means by which God accomplished his good and loving design toward us who have trusted in Christ. And the Bible is clear that death, as powerful as it is, could not sink its claws into Christ and hang on to him. Christ crucified is just one leg of the gospel. There is a second pillar, and that is Christ raised. And we'll pick that up in verse 24. Verse 24 reads, but God raised him up again. Another one of those but God statements, a great statement. It was all tragedy up to this point, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Death had an impossible task. Death tried to cling to Christ and it could not. That's the message here. And this, frankly, the resurrection of Christ was the the greatest sign that God ever gave to the world uh, that validated his son and all of his son's work. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the wheel, so Christ was three days in the tomb and the tomb could not hold on to him. The resurrection was a demonstration that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for us, that he had in fact accomplished atonement that he came to accomplish. Jesus led a sinless life. Jesus led a perfect life. Jesus led a life that was flawless, that it was altogether righteous. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus was not a sinner. So why did he die? Well, because your sin and mine was placed on him and he was counted a sinner, though he was not one. But that couldn't hold him. The grave could not keep him. And he rose victoriously on the third day as the scripture foretold. Jesus, by his own acknowledgement, is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who came and he is the one who died and he was the one who was raised again and he is the one who is the only hope for sinners. Peter had on the other side of the tomb, what? Seen him, talked with him, ate fish with him, took a long walk on the beach. It was a painful walk, but it was a good walk nonetheless. And Peter was restored to Christ and to ministry. And here Peter, that very one who had cowered before a servant girl on the night that Jesus was betrayed is standing before a crowd of thousands and calling them the murderers of Christ and declaring this Jesus not only crucified but risen. What gives a man that kind of boldness, what gives a man that kind of transformation of life is the fact that Peter had seen with his own eyes. And Peter says, you know what? 
He says that God, the Father, raised him up again. Look at these words, putting an end to the agony of death. That word for agony is actually the word birth pangs. And Peter may be speaking as New American Standard or uh, a number of other translations have, have rendered this. Peter may be talking about the agony of childbirth. Maybe that's the focal point. It may also be that Peter is declaring the insufficient power of death. I actually think this is where he's leading. I don't think he's talking here so much about the pain of death of a woman in labor as he's talking about the insufficient power of death. In other words, the grave could not hold back the Lord Jesus Christ any more than a woman in labor can hold back that child when the time has come. It was impossible, he says, for him to be held in its power. Well, whatever the case, whether the pain or the insufficient power of death, the the point is this, that Jesus came forth in victory, defeating death, defeating sin, and overcoming the grave. And I just imagine what it must have been like for Peter to preach this to a first century Jewish audience. I feel it in our own secularized day. Do you? You ever tried to talk to somebody in this day and age about a resurrected Christ? About somebody coming out of a grave? In our earthly materialistic culture, nobody thinks that's even possible. And we don't have enough vestige of of Christian truth any longer percolating through this culture for anybody really to have heard it. And I find people with that, that blank stare when I tell them about the resurrection of Christ. I think that's what Peter was looking out at a sea of faces who had no idea what he was talking about. Resurrection. It was enough for them to get over the thought that somehow their Messiah died the death of a cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They couldn't imagine that. But it is utterly unimaginable that this Christ, after having been crucified, would have raised from the dead. And Peter says, no, God proved him as the Messiah by raising him from the dead. And in order to make his point, he's going to preach the Psalms, which is just what Jesus commanded him to do. And Peter points us to Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. And he looks at his crowd and he says, look, open your Bibles to the Psalms. Psalm 16, verse 8, I want to show you something. Verse 25, for David, everybody knew who David was, the king of Israel. You'll notice down in verse 30, Peter's going to say of him that he is also a what? A prophet. For David says of him, that is Jesus, that is the Messiah. David wrote prophetically this Christological psalm, this messianic psalm. And what is it that David saw and David understood? And you need to understand this. What David wrote in Psalm 16, he writes of himself, but not only of himself and not ultimately of himself. 
David is in trouble, David is facing death, and David pens these words. But what's intriguing is that as he gets to verses 8 to 11, he clicks over to the first person. It's as if David is is somehow able to read Jesus' mind as he faces the cross. And he's quickly scribbling down the very thought and meditation of Christ's heart. What are the thoughts of the Lord as he faced the cross. Well, David says of him, the ultimate fulfillment is David's greater son. Look at it with me. Listen to the confidence of Christ as he faced the cross, as he leaned on his father in that moment. He says, I saw the Lord continually before me. What was Jesus's, where was his mind fixed? What was he preoccupied with as he was facing the cross? Was he thinking about the pain? Was he thinking about the torment? Was he thinking about all the criticism and the the false accusations that had been thrown his way? No, in the midst of all of that, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He set his father continually before him. He says, he is at my right hand. This is a different statement than saying Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. This is Jesus saying, the Father is before me. Yahweh is before me. And I have set him at my right hand. There he is, that place of strength and defense. So that I will not be shaken. If you've ever faced intimidating circumstances, you know how hard it is to say, I will not be shaken. Why could Jesus go to the cross without a panic, without uncontrollable sobbing and sorrow and and, and begging for mercy? Because he knew this was the very purpose for which he had come. And he set his father before him. And his father was at his right hand to stabilize him. And he says, look, I'm in that place of blessing and strength under the defense of God. I will not be shaken. I am utterly stable. I am utterly secure. Therefore, my heart was glad. I was in a condition of joy. And my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope. And what he means by hope there is a certain hope, an absolute hope, the fullness of knowledge. Why? Why could he be confident about his flesh? Why could he be glad? Why could he be so so, uh, hopeful and joyful as he approached the cross, the, the joy set before him? Why could he be in that state? He tells us in verse 27, here's why. I know the end from the beginning. Because you will not forsake my soul to Hades, to the grave, to the place of the dead. You won't forsake me. You'll never abandon me. Nor will you give your Holy One over to see corruption. There will be no decomposition of my body. I know what you promised me. That when I bear the sins of men and I die and I'm buried, I will be raised. In fact, in three days, there will be no composition. My flesh will not see corruption. You have been known to me the ways of life. Jesus was going from life to life. And beloved, that's the way it's going to be for you. These things that have been spoken to this point, all but one of them, are true of you as well. Which is why David could write these things even of himself. 
your flesh will see corruption. Sorry to bear the bad news. Barring the Lord's return, your flesh will see corruption for a time. Jesus has never saw it in any way, shape, or form. Now, he was shown the ways of life, and Jesus says, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. I'll never be separated. Having quoted the text, Peter begins to explain the text, which again is exactly what a preacher ought to do. He's going to reason from it. Look at verse 29. He says, men, pick your eyes up from your Bible and I want you to look me square in the eyes. He says, men, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. What's he saying? He's saying, look, in other words, David could not have been writing fully and finally of his own immediate experience. He says, there's no question about it. I can assure you with the utmost confidence that the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm cannot be realized in King David. David died like other men. David was buried like other men. David has a tomb for all to see. And David's body has turned to dust like other men. The commentator Witherington says, and I think tongue-in-cheek, he says, Peter's point is that David's tomb was still in plain view for any Jew to see, and there was no evidence of David having vacated the premises. You and I, as well as King David, have a certain hope of resurrection to eternal life. But there are things said in this text particularly about the corruption of the body that never could have been fulfilled in any other human being other than the Lord Jesus Christ. When David wrote these things, he was looking forward to the Messiah. And that's the point that Peter will pick up on in verse 30. And so, he's working logically through this, David's buried, his tomb's with us, his body has decayed in that tomb, he never rose from the dead. And so, because he was a prophet, that is David, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on his throne, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to David to to produce from his own loins a forever king who would rule over a forever kingdom, And that word forever has been troubling men in this world forever, right? Forever is not a word, frankly, that can exist in a fallen and decaying world. And by forever king, God means a forever king. One who will live forever and a forever kingdom is a forever kingdom. One that will will stand forever. Kings are enthroned and kings are deposed and kings are born and kings die. Kingdoms come and and they go, they rise and they fall. The enemy of death and corruption has to be dealt with if one is to rule in perpetuity. And this is precisely Peter's point. 
This was David's point. These are the things that were prophesied of the Messiah. And Peter tells us in verse 31 that David looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Now stop for a minute. And do you have room in your hermeneutic as you try to understand the word of God? Do you have room to see, again, that there are things that are fulfilled in, in one way at one point in time which have still a greater fulfillment in another way and in another time, a, a, a greater realization of these realities what was prophesied by David is now fulfilled in Jesus. Abner Chow in his book, The Hermeneutics of the Biblical Writers, writes, asks this question. It's a great question. He says, did the prophets speak better than they knew or better than we give them credit for? And it's his conviction that it's the latter. In other words, David's brain wasn't just turned off and somehow he was just you know, writing a bunch of words without any mind at all toward the Christ who was to come. No, the Spirit made aware to the prophets what it was they were writing, not in the HD and technical color that we now have it in the Newer Testament, but, but David was aware. He spoke of what he understood. And this text tells us that he looked ahead in time nearly a thousand years, by the way, and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. And you remember that word is the, the Greek rendering of Messiah. That he was neither forsaken to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He specifies that little piece out of Psalm 16. And he says, this could be said about no one else. This Jesus, verse 32, God raised up again. And he says, we're witnesses of these things. We've seen him. We bear truthful testimony. These are not cleverly devised tales. These are divinely accomplished truths. And they're in your Bible. I wonder if it sounded this quiet in that crowd as Peter unfolded them before their eyes things that they had never seen. You know that feeling when somebody exposes you to something in scripture, maybe it's just in your own reading time, but you come to a, a fuller realization of a text or you begin to gain insight by the Spirit's illumination of the text and all of a sudden, man, it's, it's a great day. I've advanced in life, like I'm moving forward. This is wonderful. And these people, I'm convinced that they, they're just dumbfounded. They're slack-jawed by what they're hearing from Peter. And it's creating a lot of pressure on their hearts as they begin to connect the dots about who it is that they put to death. Well, what's the implication of a risen Christ? 
Well, it's an ascended and an exalted Christ, and that really is Peter's third point here. He's, he's, he, he's going to point them to the exaltation of Christ, and this could be subsumed under the idea of resurrection. This is not a distinct pillar of the gospel. It's a clear implication of a resurrected Jesus that he has ascended and exalted, and he is one day going to what? He's going to return. All of that is tied up in this idea of resurrection Let's look at Christ exalted, beginning in verse 33. He really brings this thing full circle. You remember where we started? The people were amazed at what was happening in their midst. Tongues of fire and people speaking languages they never studied. And the people are amazed. And Peter stands up and says, let me tell you about this. It's spoken of in the prophet Joel. And now he's going to bring this sermon all the way full circle. And he's going to say, let me come back to this point about the Holy Spirit. You want to know why the Spirit now abides with men? I'll tell you why. Verse 33, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. That phraseology is very common in scripture. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. It is the position of glory. It is a high position. It's a position of power and authority. You remember Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Frankly, you could say this, that to be at the right hand of God is nothing less than saying, I'm equal with God, I am God. And you can trace that phrase through the scriptures. You remember that Jesus was accused of blasphemy for asserting his rightful position at the right hand of God when he was put on trial and the Jews said, we have no need to ask him any further question. He's blasphemed right in your midst. He claimed to be God right before you. You remember Stephen. The sermon wasn't going along real well, but he got to the end of his message and, and he made the statement that he saw the heavens open up and there was Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And what did they do to him? They gnashed their teeth and they stoned him for claiming to be God. Beloved, verse 33 is nothing less than a blatant statement about the deity of Christ. Jesus is exalted and he receives again the glory that was his with God and as God before the world began. Look down again at verse 33. Having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. This is another evidence of the deity of Christ. The Holy Spirit, Peter says, has been sent by the exalted Son. The very proof of Jesus' ascension is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And it stands to reason, doesn't it, that who could send forth the Holy Spirit of God but God himself? You see, Jesus had ascended back to the right hand of the power on high, the majesty on high, and what happens? God the Father had promised Christ the sending of the Spirit, and Jesus had told his disciples, if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And here's Jesus now ascended to heaven, there at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the Holy Spirit, he now pours it out on the day 
of Pentecost, just as he said he would. And then Peter does what every good preacher will do. He comes back to the text of Scripture to assert the exaltation of Jesus. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens. You see what he's doing? You remember back in John chapter 6, where Jesus had fed the masses, the 25,000 the day before, and, and they all came to Capernaum. They ran over there to meet him. And, and, and Jesus says, you know, you're, you're only here for breakfast. You need to work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. And they say, well, well, what is this that we're to do? And he says, the work of God is to believe on the Son whom he sent. And Jesus says, if, if you ask me, I'm the living bread which comes down out of heaven. If, if you ask me, I, I'm going to give this bread to you. And, and Jesus has to say to them, look, it was not Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven, but my father. The Jews had come to a place, they'd elevated Moses to such a place that they thought Moses was the reason they were fed all those years in the desert. And Jesus has to say to them, Who's Moses? It's my father who gave you that. This is just the way that Peter is reasoning with the Jews. They think David was writing of himself in these psalms that he wrote, and Peter has to tell them, David could not have written this. David did not ascend into the heavens. David was not kept from decomposition at death. David was not raised from the dead. David is not the one who ascended to heaven. David is not the one who was exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus is the one. But he, David himself, says, this is incredible. Here's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. He's quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. David himself, who wrote Psalm 110, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Do you see this? Matthew says that David was writing here, speaking in the Holy Spirit. In other words, David here, again, is a prophet under the inspiration of God, but he's eavesdropping on a divine conversation between the Father and the Son, which seems dangerous to me when I thought about it, but, but he's doing it. He's hearing this conversation between the Father and the Son where the Son extends to the where the Father extends to the Son the privilege of sitting at Yahweh's right hand. And this prophecy again written a millennia before the fulfillment of it is fulfilled when Jesus ascends to the Father and sits at his right hand. David was not enthroned at the right hand of God on high, but Jesus is. And the Father says to the Son, you just sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is a, a figure to say, till I bring everyone and everything in submission, in humiliation before you. 
I told you Peter was bringing this full circle. It really looks back to that day of which Joel spoke at the end of the age, that great and awesome day of the Lord at the second coming of Christ when every knee will bow and every tongue confess on heaven, on the earth, under the earth, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day, when, when God is vindicated and the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, that day, which will come upon the unbelieving like a, a thief in the night, like, like something out of nowhere, panic will set upon them. I couldn't help but thinking of this passage as I was preparing this week with those devastating fires in Hawaii and some of the clips I watched of people fleeing And you could, you could hear their heart pounding, couldn't you? And you, you could hear the shortness of breath and the panic and the utter sense of, of unbelief at what was transpiring around them, the danger that they were in. You could hear the cursing, the cursing of God himself in the mouths of the ungodly and the utter disbelief at the sudden terrifying destruction that was in their midst. And I cannot imagine how much greater this day will be. And Peter brings his hearers face to face with the risen, ascended, and enthroned Christ. And he says, this is the one with whom you have to do. Verse 36, therefore, He's bringing this all to this point of conclusion. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ or Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter brings this message to a thundering crescendo. Do you realize what you've done? Let there be no mistake, he says. You know this for certain. There will be no confusion. You can put away all your doubts. You can strip every argument to the contrary out of your mouth. God has exalted him. This Christ, he's made him Lord. He's made him the Messiah. He's enthroned on high. He's returning again to judge the living and the dead. And you crucified him. Can you imagine the weight upon the consciences of those who are listening to this message? I assure you, you could have heard a pin drop. And it was intense and we are out of time and we will see what the response to this message was next week. But beloved, in closing, I want to say this to you. You know, we have very much in common with those listening to Peter in that day. There is not a person here this morning who is not a sinner in need of a savior. Each of us, by virtue of our sin, frankly, are responsible for the death of Christ. It was your iniquity, it was my iniquity that Christ bore on that cross. Each of us has known, haven't we, through the scriptures, the preaching of the word, we know God has attested to the deity of Christ to the fact that he was no mere man, that he was the perfect God-man sent by God 
fully God, fully man, that he might put an arm around God and put an arm around us and reconcile us as the one mediator between God and man. We need this Christ. We, like like they, understand that this eternal love, this Savior, has been given by God to each and every one who will receive him. This crucified Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we, like they, must bow in humble repentance and faith before him. My question to you this morning on the heels of Peter's sermon is this, have you come all the way to Christ? As Nathan in his prayer said earlier, he alone is the resurrection and the life. And you have it from the, from the lips of him who is the resurrection and the life that the one believing in him, the one who believes, anyone, everyone who will call upon the Lord will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And I like the way the legacy standard brings out the Greek in that section. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Literally never to the end of the age. Beloved Jesus is the crucified, risen King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is ascended to the right hand of his Father and he is returning. And he has made this promise to spare everyone, every single one who will turn to him in genuine faith and repentance from the wrath that is to come. Jesus, beloved, is there for the taking. There is salvation in no other. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our Lord, we know nothing until we have come to know you. Nothing of substance. Nothing of eternal significance. You are the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by you. And Lord, we are your sheep and we heed these words and we can't help, Lord, in hearing them to acknowledge our own guilt before you and our own unworthiness. Lord, we were helpless and we were ungodly. We were sinners. We were your enemies. And yet, Christ, you died for us in the greatest act of condescension and mercy and compassion and grace ever. And Lord, you have made a promise that all who believe on you, all who repent in genuine faith and turn to you for a living hope, Lord, you you will fill us with the living water. You will give us so that we are quenched. You will make us your own. You have adopted your people to live with you for all eternity. And Lord, we have the promise of your return that you might 
Take us to be with you where you are. And Lord, that causes our heart to rejoice. Thank you for these profound truths. Thank you for our time this morning in your word. It's a treasure to us that you give it to us to instruct us in the way. Feed your sheep and implant these things deeply, we ask for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together. When I was a kid, man, I hoped we wouldn't sing hymns. Choruses were simple. Choruses were clear. My theological knowledge could have fit in a thimble. And there's nothing wrong with choruses. They're wonderful and our hearts rejoice. But I think I realized as time went on, you know what really hindered me when it came to the singing of hymns is mostly I just didn't get the rich significance of the language. Did you hear what we just sang? Crown him the Lord of heaven. One with the Father, known. One with the Spirit, through him given from yonder glorious throne. To thee be endless praise, for thou for us hast died. Be thou, O Lord, through endless days adored and magnified. That final verse of that hymn should mean more to you following this sermon than it did before you came in today. Our Christ is kind to teach us, to sanctify us and to lead us forward in truth. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you.